I'm Paul Brady, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of the Cork Report Network. To listen, search for us on Spotify, Google, Apple, and most places you can find podcasts. I've been away uh, for a couple of months working on getting our business open, Paul Brady Wine in Beacon, New York. We are a winery. We are a wine shop. We are a tasting room. We are a bar. We sell beer, spirits, cider, cocktails, mixed drinks, all under one roof. It's been about 15 months of work, and we are finally open, and uh, it's going it's going pretty good so far. Um, lots more uh, to come in January and February, so I'll... Uh, I'll save those details for uh, future episodes of the pod. Uh, you can check out paulbradywine.com right now or follow us on Instagram at paulbradywine to see what's going on. Today, uh, talking about the grape that uh, the wine world has their eyes focused on New York uh, on, and that's, uh, of course, Cabernet Franc for the moment. You might have thought I was going to say Riesling, but uh, those of you who know me might know better. I do love Riesling, but... Um, there's uh, there's something really special that we have going on here with Cabernet Franc right now, um, and uh, I brought on my favorite Cabernet Franc expert, Allison Salute, known as Cab Franc Chronicles, to the rest of the world on Instagram. And this was our conversation about New York and Ontario Cabernet Franc. Here we go. a part of the Cork Report Network. Thank you, as always, to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com or wherever you purchase or stream music. Joining me today, Allison Sloot, up in my favorite city in Canada, Toronto. Allison, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Happy holidays. Happy holidays. I'm doing all right. Um, do... <laughs> Do uh, do many people tell you that Toronto is their favorite city in in Canada? You know, uh, usually as Canadians, we get some sort of, "Hey, do you know so and so in so and so?" And you're like, "Yeah, Calgary. That's that's pretty far away." Uh, yep, uh, but no, no, I don't know Tom in in Calgary. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, a lot of people. It's usually a toss up between Toronto or Montreal. Depends on uh, depends on the person. So like Vancouver, not even, not even on the short list. Uh, you know, it's not usually up there because usually most people, especially in, in the wine world, usually say Montreal is like, you know, number one, because it's just such a great food and wine city. And then everybody else is like Toronto. It's like kind of Montreal ish, but they speak English there. And it's like, yeah, cool. Right. <laughs> Whatever. And Toronto's then, cooler than Montreal. But, you know, if you're talking to someone from California, then they're likely probably have been to Vancouver before they've been to Montreal. So they'll have a different opinion. But uh, the the coasts are very polarizing. So I think the same is in the in the U.S. Like you have the West Coast people and you have the East Coast people. And um, you kind of side with oftentimes one or the other, unless, you, unless you've lived, lived on both coasts, of course. Do we think that Montreal is really a cool, as cool a city as everyone says, or is it just the French thing? 
Yeah, I mean, like, is no, it, it, I, I, it, let me, don't get me wrong. I like Montreal a lot. It's funny. Montreal is one of those cities that they say, Montreal is like the only city New Yorkers are jealous of in, uh, <laughs> in like North America. I think maybe New Orleans might be on that, might make that list as well. But uh, Montreal is certainly, certainly up there. But is it really as cool a city, a city just for like, you know, uh, properly being a city? Or is it really just that old world French thing that everyone is obsessed with when they arrive there? Yeah, I think I think it's really a, a fantastic city. Uh, it has, um, it's an easy city to get around in. Um, obviously, there's all those European influences, but just the food and wine scene, but there's also cultural aspects to the city. That, and there's more than just, um, you know, Eurocentric cuisine too. There's a lot of diversity as far as other ethnic cuisines. And just, it's just an all around amazing global you know, international city. And I do, I do believe it's, it's a really special place in North America for sure. I love Montreal. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I just, <laughs> I just like, I got, I'm, I'm giving it to Toronto because most people don't give it to Toronto. They're like, ah, oh, Montreal or, or I don't know, Quebec city or whatever. But you know, those have the, the kind of exotic French thing, but Toronto to me is just like a real, a true, a real city. I mean, it's big and it's, it's got an edge to it. You know, it's got that film industry. It's got, you know, it, it's, it doesn't feel to me like a, I don't know, um, like a middle America, Midwestern, big, big Canadian version of Chicago or something. I also love yeah. Chicago. Don't get me wrong, but Toronto does almost, I don't know. It, it, it is unique and it's not just cause the hockey hall of fame is there, you know? <laughs> I think if, if Chicago and, New York had a baby, it would be like Toronto. Cause I think Toronto does a little bit of both. There is that slightly Midwestern energy that Canadians have, which I, I associate with a lot of Midwesterners as well. But then there is a little bit of a New Yorker edge to the city. And then you have this metropolitan feel with the film industry and the arts and so many other aspects of it that feels somewhat uh, New York like. So I think it does a little bit of a little bit of both. So what's new and exciting in Toronto? I was last there in like fall of 2019, which is so I mean, I mean, I again, it, it truly is my favorite city in Canada. And one of my favorite cities in general, I, I would love to come back to both go to Toronto and to go to the Niagara Peninsula. And, uh, but what's what's new and exciting? Well, actually, this is this is I just moved to the city um, for the first time in my whole life, actually, in July. Um, well, that's new all, and exciting. <laughs> that, that is very new and exciting. Yeah, my whole life, I grew up uh, north of north of Toronto, about an hour and 15 or so minutes north of Toronto. And then uh, I lived in southwestern Ontario for a while when I went to university. And then I was in the Niagara region for the longest time when I started my wine career. And I lived in the U.S. for six years and now I'm back and, and I've now just settled in Toronto, uh, you know, just not even six months ago. So a lot of the city is new to me. And 
when I was in Niagara, I used to come to the city all the time and love the food scene, but it's really, it's really evolved um, in an amazing way as far as just the, the caliber of restaurants that we see here, the diversity of cuisines. Um, recently, actually with the, you know, if there's a good thing that's come out of this pandemic, um, we have a monopoly system here in Ontario in terms of how uh, alcohol is uh, imported, distributed and retailed. And uh, a new regulation came down uh, in March 2020 that allowed restaurants to do, just like in uh, some parts of the U.S., that allowed restaurants to sell bottles uh, unopened for takeaway, you know, takeout. People can get their takeout and take a bottle of wine home with them, which they never could do before. And uh, in Ontario, there's only one retailer, and that's the LCBO. And then all of a sudden, this new regulation allowed for restaurants to essentially become little bottle shops, which has just created this whole new channel for people to explore wine, uh, which is really, really amazing because now people see that there's access to other things beyond just what's in, in the LCBOs uh, in terms of those stores. So I would say that is something really important uh, to the city as far as its evolution and where it's going in terms of the food, the food and wine scene. Um, but just in general, like this is such a fantastic city and there's so many neighborhoods to explore and uh, lots of green spaces. And, um, you know, they're putting obviously there's a lot of outdoor seating, not now, obviously, because it's winter. But, um, you know, those sorts of things, I think, are really cool uh, in terms of what's happening in the city and how it's changing. And it's also affecting, you know, feeder cities in terms of the the burbs and stuff. And we're seeing better cuisine um, in the suburbs and in Niagara and, and other parts of the, the province as well. Allison, I have to correct you because there is another place to buy alcohol and it's called the beer store. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you want beer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So for, uh, I promise this is my last <laughs> bit of trolling Toronto, which I'm not trolling. I fucking love Toronto. <laughs> but like, is the beer store still like when you go in there, is there still like a conveyor belt? That like brings the beer out from the back room. <laughs> One of my greatest childhood memories was going to the beer store with my parents because my my parents were beer people, and uh, I just I remember you know it was usually before or after church on Saturdays. <laughs> my mom would stop at the beer store, and you walk up to the thing, and you're like, "Oh, I'll take a two four of Labatt's Blue," and the guy you know reaches into the mic, he's like two four blue, and then. <laughs> comes down the conveyor belt, the conveyor belt, like you said. It, and yes, that still exists. It's amazing. There are some self-serve beer stores where you can actually go and just grab your case, but some of those OG beer stores still exist with the conveyor belt. It's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Strange Brew. With, uh, it's, uh, been, it's been ages, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I mean, when you're so, I, so, I'm from Michigan, so you know, I could see Canada from the end of my street um, where I grew up in the Detroit area, and you know, like any good kid in Michigan, played hockey and and all that stuff. And the movie Strange Brew is like you see that when you're young because it's like it's not like a hockey movie, but it's kind of a hockey movie. Um, <laughs> And they go to the beer store and, and, and it's like, you're like, what that, like, that's where you buy beer in, in Canada. And, and it's true. Like, because my, I think, I think we chatted about this. My family used to have a cottage on the Canadian side of Lake Huron, um, sort of between Grand Bend and Bayfield. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
going into the beer store in Grand Bend for the first time was a trip for me because it was like, okay, but it's this it's legit. It's just like in the movie. It, it's you know, it should be one of those things that every visitor does. You know, find a Canadian and go to the beer store and <laughs> just see what happens and experience that joy of the dude talking into the microphone and two four boom yeah. and it just rolling down the conveyor belt. Yeah, I mean like that that's absolutely something everybody should do when they when they go to Ontario. No, but like now you can buy wine and stuff in certain grocery stores, isn't that right? Uh yes, this is true. Uh I forget about that because the wines that are in the grocery stores aren't aren't ones that I typically uh, am drinking. You know, that's the that's the lower end um, stuff. There's a lot of the you know yellowtail and and you know those bigger <clears throat> excuse me those bigger brands. Uh, there's a lot of Ontario representation in um, in the grocery stores as well. But um, generally speaking, that's not you know if I'm in a pinch, I'm I'm grabbing a wine at the at the grocery store. But it's super handy, especially for busy families that you know want a great bottle of wine but don't have time to stop at the lcbo it's it's perfect well so let's before we like really do the deep dive into cabernet franc in general let's let's chat uh ontario wines for a minute it's funny my actual actually very first podcast episode that i did was about canadian wine with jamie good um who uh, you probably know is a pretty familiar face in the ontario Mm -hmm. Wine industry, and it, it, that was actually even before I had the podcast up and running. That was on Instagram Live. Um, so, and I have not podcasted for months, Allison. Um, this is this is like my wannabe triumphant return, and I'm super stoked that we're going to chat about Ontario. Um, what was what was your? We'll, we'll get to your sort of career starting in the industry out in Niagara and stuff. But I'm curious, like just drinking wine in general. As you were growing up or as you became of age, were you checking out Ontario wine from the get-go or did you start with, I don't know, something more old world? Yeah, uh, I was definitely not, uh, you know, Ontario wine was not on my radar really until I began in the industry. Um, I think I, I think when I was in university, my first thing that I tried that was like, wow, this is delicious was probably <clears throat> yellowtail Chardonnay or something like this. Cause this was the early two thousands. And that was when that was kind of making its, its way, uh, through the LCBO. So it was probably something from Australia. And then eventually my palate, uh, actually rather quickly, I think then found Spain and Portugal. Portugal is really well represented here in Ontario. Um, so I think I was gravitating to Spanish Tempranillo and some Portuguese red blends and things like like this. Uh, but it really wasn't until I started working in the wine industry in Ontario that I really started to embrace our own uh, local local products. So what, uh, what got to you first? What were you enjoying drinking initially from Ontario? Uh, actually, it was probably Cabernet Franc. Um, first and first and foremost, it was one of those things. Um, when I started, I literally jumped into the industry pretty green. And uh, the winery that I worked for um, for the first chunk of my career, um, Pilatari Estates Winery in Niagara on the Lake, 
their their flagship red was a Cab Franc, and it was the one that I was introduced to first before I even worked there. Um, the day I remember the day that I dropped off my resume. I, I met the CEO and he was very kind and I handed him my resume and he literally grabbed a bottle of Cabernet Franc off the shelf and said, thank you so much for your resume. Uh, we'll definitely be in touch here. Take this home and give it a try. And it was just like one of those like, totally random things. So it was probably a Cab Franc that first got my, you know, got my attention. Um, and then Riesling, of course, was probably something else that uh, I gravitated to very quickly because you know, we make fantastic Riesling here and in an, in an array of styles. And I was never even, and it's funny, in the Finger Lakes, where I was, you know, in July, there's a lot of focus on the dry Riesling. Uh, whereas here, we tend to do Riesling more in an off-dry style. Um, it's rare that you come across the really, really bone dry ones. And I find the ones that have a little bit of residual to be really just very friendly to the palate, great food wines. And so I was very accustomed to drinking these off dry styles of Riesling that had, you know, 20 grams to le per liter residual sugar or something, just a touch to offset the acid. And those were probably the wines that I was uh, drinking most often when I first got into the industry for sure. I think that like my first Riesling, first sip of Riesling I ever had, I'm fairly certain it was Cave Spring Dolomite Riesling. Ooh, nice. And that nice. Was, that's a good, that that's been, a great like, introduction. Yeah. Like ever, like I, I probably knew something about German Riesling and just from like listening to my parents talk or whatever that like, oh, Rieslings are, you know, typically really sweet. We don't really drink sweet wines or whatever. And, but when, when they had that cottage uh, on Lake Huron in Canada and there was this incredible um, pub that was about 10 minutes north um, and that was really impactful for my development in uh, later yeah. in the wine industry. Um, and the owner of that pub, this guy, Ted McIntosh had been a Psalm in Toronto and had worked in the industry in Ontario for Henry of Pelham. And he could tell that I was curious about wine and brought me just poured a, poured a taste of this, uh, of that Riesling. And I was like, wow. And I think I remember even the dish I was eating, I was eating this like vegetable curry and, and like that, the pairing was a big aha moment for me. And it, I don't remember it being a sweet wine. I think it was, um, drinking fairly dry, even if there was a little bit of RS in there. And that was, that was actually my aha moment with, with wine in general and, and, and like the whole food pairing thing. Um, and I've, I, I mean, Canada has just been so important to me, uh, in terms of my development in, in, into the industry. And it sounds like a Canadian Cab Franc was your aha wine. It, it, well, maybe not like the epiphany wine that made me say I need to be in the wine industry, but certainly as a local variety um, and a grape that uh, I obviously now have devoted a lot of time to. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, just, yeah. just a smidge. Just a smidge. Yeah. Well, it, the, it was the Canadian, uh, my Canadian friends who who knew wine who were like, oh, you're moving to New York. Oh, you, you have to check out New York wines and and that was how I sort of got into it myself. Um, so I'm kind of curious, once you started working in the industry in Niagara, did you sort of 
just start teaching yourself about kind of all the the major grapes there, which are are many. I mean, Chardonnay is certainly big. Uh, Riesling is big. Cap Franc is big. Pinot Noir, Gamay, um, mm-hmm. and then and then a handful of others, even hybrids like Baco Noir and Vidal Blanc and um, uh, Marichal Foch, things like that. Um, where did it, where did it sort of spiral from, from there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And and my, my foray into the industry, which, uh, really informed how I, uh, you know, learned about the, the local grape varieties and styles and everything. So the role that I had at Pilatary, I was in charge of our exports, um, so we were a big exporter of ice wine and of course everybody, well, most people know uh, about Canada and ice wine. Um, so we were, we were exporting to, you know, 30 odd countries globally. So I was chatting, you know, I was traveling a lot and I was talking about, of course, our wine, but in most of the markets that I was visiting, um, you know, I was traveling to Asia, I was traveling to different parts of Northern Europe and most of the markets that I was visiting, you know, we were one of two maybe Canadian wines that were in the market. Maybe we were the only one in some instances. So I had to actually speak about, it wasn't Pilatary's wine. It was, this is what Canada does and more specifically Ontario. So I had to talk about, okay, well, cool climate. We do sparkling really well. We have Pinot Noir and and Chardonnay planted. So we do, you know, r- uh, whites and reds from those, but we also do sparkling from those. And then, you know, I mentioned Gamay, I mentioned Riesling, you know, and then of course we talk, I, we didn't have a ton of hybrids in the ground, so we didn't mention too much about besides Vidal, obviously, and that was a part of the ice wine conversation. But, you know, if somebody asked about Baco, I would mention it. But really, the focus in terms of vinifera varieties, I always, you know, the the leads were always Chard, Riesling, and then um, obviously on the red side, it would be Cab Franc, uh, Gamay, and Pinot Noir were always those sort of key five that I would always talk about with people. Um but it was great because I, I, you know, I had a chance to speak about all these wines and really sort of fly the flag, if you will, for Ontario and Canada and, and speak about all these varieties and the different styles that we do um, to a, a really wide, wide audience, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> now, so is there any sort of conversation going on in terms of hybrid grapes in Ontario right now? Is anybody excited about that? I mean, like, I'm sure, as you know, having visited New York recently, um, there's a bit of bit of a, a, a movement happening in in not just New York but also the Northeast in general or the uh, Atlantic uh, Northeast. Anything? Uh, anybody excited about that in Ontario? Doing cool stuff. <clears throat> yeah, you know what? Uh, to to be very honest with you, I haven't seen a ton of hybrids being you know actively uh, used or or you know talked about. Uh, in the same way that vinifera is, um, I think I don't want to say that the ship has sailed because I'm I'm new. I'm back to the industry here um, after a bit of a hiatus, but I don't see hybrids to the same extent that I I do in um, other parts of say uh, New York or uh, like in, in Michigan. So I think perhaps to a certain extent the the hybrid ship has sailed, unless we're talking ice wine and and Vidal. And although I should say that Vidal. 
we've seen a lot more uh, versatility in terms of Vidal use here in Niagara. And that I find very exciting. Um, Vidal has a really thick skin, so it's great for skin contact whites. So you're seeing um, some orange wines made from Vidal. And it also has a ton of acidity. So there's a lot of interesting sparkling wines being made, whether it is in a, um, you know, kind of Charmant method or like almost Prosecco-ish or in a, in more like a Petnat style of, uh, and working with the grape variety in that way, which I think is really cool. Um, I'm trying to think of other hybrids besides like Baco. Uh, there's a well, little yeah, bit I of, mean, like, yeah, I feel like, I mean, like wineries, like, like Henry Pelham, they're no doubt still doing their yeah, reserve they're, Baco and all absolutely, that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the, it's, yeah, that's the benchmark. Foch, and, uh, and and I did have last time I was in Toronto, I had an orange wine made from Vidal. I can't remember the producer, um, but it was tasty. So that's interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah. I think I think what people are doing with Vidal now, I think, is really interesting because, in particular, at least consumers locally know what Vidal is because of ice wine. So to see Vidal on a label for something else that is either sparkling or orange or something, it's a it's a cool introduction to. Uh, a grape that they're already somewhat familiar with. Um, but definitely, obviously, Baco is a big one. And then Foch, uh, some of the old vine Foch that, you know, Malavar is doing. And there's a few other people that are working with it. But otherwise, like, I don't see a ton. Like, I think there's a little bit of Chamberson still in the ground somewhere. But otherwise, um, most of the, because there's not a lot of land here in in Niagara. And it's premium. You know, the prices in Niagara for, for land is pretty expensive uh, from what I recall. So, you know, the available land, the good terroirs are really being planted with, with vinifera um, from what I, from what yeah, I understand you're, at least. You're almost like the Burgundy of North America. I mean, there's just such an opportunity to or plant Loire. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. You know, well, okay, yes. okay, all right. We're gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Um, uh, but the the Gamay and Pinot Noir, those two in particular, and I and and certainly Chardonnay. And I mean, it's funny because just having come from Michigan and Canada in in uh, in some part, um, arriving to New York back in two thousand eight, no one was talking about Canadian wine. I mean, I, I, I was able to find some and found some people that knew of it and were interested in it. And the, the, now when I hear like master sommeliers talk and things like that, they, they often cite Chardonnay from Southern Ontario as being this, you know, one of the most exciting and cool things to look out for in the new world that's not new. That's been around for a little while, but it does seem to now be, be, you know, really getting, getting some airtime. Um, do you feel that? Is it becoming more mainstream to you? I think, uh, Chardonnay, you know, like you said, I would say if there was a leading white that I think we do really, really well, I would definitely say Chardonnay. Um, if there's a, you know, in terms of uh, what I purchase that isn't Cab Franc locally, it's often shard um, because I just think uh, we've got a lot of limestone, particularly in the Niagara Escarpment area, and Chardonnay seems to work really well. There's some older vine uh, plantings as well that go back to the 80s. 
Um, and it just, it's a bit more, as much as there's the people that are anti-Chardonnay, I think it's an easier sell and an easier um, wine because of Burgundy, because of other great examples around the world. Um, I think people get Chardonnay more than they get Riesling, at least here. Um, I was really impressed by the way when I was in the Finger Lakes, how people embraced Riesling to the extent that they do. Like as, as a community, like everybody is behind Finger Lakes Riesling. And that made me so happy to see that. And I think it's uh, Chardonnay here. People that are really in love with Chardonnay uh, from Ontario, you know, they are happy to champion that, you know, with their friends and you are starting to see it exported a little bit, a little bit more as well, not uh, to the U.S., but um, other parts of the world as well. But I think there was a decanter article ooh, back in like 2015 or 2016 where Spurrier, you know, it was like one of his year end or, or you know, things that he was excited about. And it was it, there was a couple Canadian Chardonnays that he mentioned. And uh, I think it's really a great grape for the region. And it has a ton of versatility as well. And it, quite frankly, as a white variety, I'm more excited, uh, with all due respect to all the Riesling producers in Ontario, I'm, I'm a lot more excited about Chardonnay coming from Ontario than I am uh, Riesling. Well, yeah, I mean, I think for good reason. I mean, there there is just something uh, for for Chardonnay drinkers in particular. If you like that more, the you know white Burgundy style, I, I'm just trying to think of examples. Something like the Taz Quarry Road, you know, sticks out in my head as being. I, I feel like I hear Psalms talk about that occasionally, saying things like, "This is the best New World chart I've ever had," or whatever. Um, so I, I do Taz, think there's good reason. Yep. You know, for y'all to yeah. hang your hats on Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some great, uh, and there's some even even some smaller batch uh, stuff. Uh, Kalus is another one, uh, which is uh, headed up by actually it's now Kelly Mason, who's I believe full time winemaker there. But Thomas Balchelder has uh, has flown flown the the Chardonnay flag for some time now. Uh, Westcott Vineyards is another one, very small estate, but they are hanging their hat on Chardonnay, and their Chardonnays are just outstanding. Um, Hidden Bench is another too, one. He, yep. he was behind the yep. closure back in the day, right? A bachelor, yeah, exactly. Which is now revived. Um, closure Dan is back alive and and making wine again, which is really really exciting. But uh, there's some really outstanding, and also in Prince Edward County as well. There's some great examples of Chardonnay uh, there. So all corners of the province, it's a great grape, and it, it does fantastic blanc de blanc sparkling as well. So obviously fantastic uh dry you know normal still whites uh with a little kiss of oak i think are the best styles is when there's a little bit of oak aging on them uh and or or sparkling of course let's let's chat gamay for a minute before we go down the cap franc path um <laughs> i mean I, I i growing up my i spent some time in france when i was pretty young with my family living there actually and you know, my my parents like to drink Beaujolais Nouveau. You know, when when it was the season, and so I I knew what Gamay Noir was. And um, when I had my first sip of an Ontario Gamay Noir, I was quite impressed, um, and have sort of just been a Gamay fanatic really ever since, and largely in good part because of Canada. Um, how how do you feel about Gamay Noir? Um, how do I feel about Gamay Noir? Uh, I enjoy Gamay. 
I would say, <laughs> try. it's like, who do I not offend by this? No, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, no, I, I honestly, I love Beaujolais. I love Cru Beaujolais. Uh, and I enjoy a few Ontario Gamays. Uh, Malavoir obviously is the one, as far as I'm concerned, that does Gamay really, really well. Uh, 13th Street does a banging Gamay. I have not had any Batchelders doing some single vineyard Gamays now, which I have not tried yet. So I see a lot of energy being pushed uh, under Gamay, and I like it because I do think it's a great variety for Ontario. Uh, I just my opinion is is that I don't think it quite holds a candle to perhaps Pinot and, and Cab Franc as a variety in terms of just intrigue and complexity. And I think that might be to do with some of the clones that we've got for Gamay as well as the terroirs. Like I think Gamay on granite, which you get in Beaujolais, is something really special. And I'm just not sure if we have the right soils to, to make Gamay really exciting, like Beaujolais level exciting. Not that, you know, Canada can have its own Gamay that is its own thing, but obviously from a reference point, we all think Beaujolais first. So um, yeah, I love, I like Gamay. I don't like it as much as I like Cabernet Franc. <laughs> They're sort Duh. of tied for me. I, I was like a Gamay head and then Cabernet Franc caught up and now I love them equally. Um, but I, I'm still sort of enamored by Ontario Gamay and I'm jealous because here in New York, we really only have a couple sizable plantings of it. There's more going in and I think that there's a bright future for it. It also does nicely in Michigan, some really fine examples coming, coming out of there. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you're 25 years ahead of us in, in, uh, Ontario over New York in terms of Gamay, but uh, yeah, I, I, sure. I'm really excited about the future of Gamay in in our uh, part of cold climate viticulture here in the Northeast. Agreed, agreed. It is it it's a great great variety for the climate, for it, just in general. And I do think um, with the rise of people getting interested in Beaujolais, that opens a fantastic door to uh, selling more local Gamay, which um, I think is anything you know anything we can do to sell more local wine is is a good thing in my opinion so let's get into your healthy obsession with cabernet franc you you are affectionately known as cab franc chronicles on instagram and i'm, I'm going to start our conversation uh on this subject with a rather provocative statement <laughs> oh dear i think that New York has the edge over Ontario on Cabernet Franc. Ouch. Wow. Okay. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm willing to, to, to stay open-minded and, you know, continue. I will taste Canadian wines until the day I die. So, and drink them and love them. Um, but there's something about what we have going on here right now in New York that I, I think is, I, I don't know. I, I just think there's something. Something happened. Something clicked with the viticulture, with the winemaking. Uh, the the Cab Franc in Ontario that I taste is 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 different um, as it should be. But I want to hear from you stylistically, sort of where where the movement is right now for Ontario Cabernet Franc because we can we can talk about different styles, right? So I, I guess if we are to talk benchmark, right? Loire Valley, 
we can talk about more sort of medium to medium plus, you know, slightly fuller styles um, with, with a certain amount of high pedigree. And then we can talk about more playful styles that are a bit lighter and, and that are just sort of fun and cheerful and meant to be had as sort of bistro wines. Um, where does, I, I, I guess you, you probably have a, a love for all styles or many styles of Cabernet Franc, but where does it sort of start for you with the, 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 you know, the, the Clorogeards or the, the more sort of everyday wines? Um, well, first, first of all, uh, <laughs> with regards to your New York versus Ontario comment, um, I, I have only, I will admit, uh, I have only had a very small selection of Cabernet Francs from New York thus far and none yet from Long Island. So, uh, Len has assured me that there is some really outstanding Cabernet Franc in Long Island and I have yet to taste that. So, um, at the moment, my opinion with regards to New York is solely, um, you know, in the Finger Lakes camp. Um, and on that point, I do think Ontario has a leg up on the Finger Lakes as far as Cabernet Franc is concerned um awesome. but i love this i di- i digress um <laughs> okay all right so just, let's 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 continue this friendly competition here so chat with me about what you see as being the driver of style right now in ontario for cabernet franc and then we gotta we gotta open we gotta we gotta pull some corks and drink these wines that uh, that we keep up for <laughs> Well, so there's actually the beauty of Cab Franc is there. There's a bunch of things that are happening right now that I think are really exciting. Uh, Cab Franc is a great variety can can do a lot of things. It can do, like you said, it can do easy drinking, fruitier styles. It can do fuller bodied um, Bordeaux like styles, a more complex and concentrated examples. And I think Ontario does all of that really well. Um, but what I think is really leading the charge is these wines that are, I would say sub $30, maybe, you know, there's not maybe even sub 25 Canadian where they sort of do a little dance between not too fruity and easy drinking, but not something you need to tuck away for two, three years in order for it to be approachable. There are a lot of wineries that are working in this zone where, um, you know, they've had decent yields and there's maybe a touch of older wood briefly, or maybe it's all stainless steel. And they're creating these examples of Cabernet Franc that sit in that 15 to $25 uh, price point that make it super accessible for the average person. And these are wines that are, you know, deliciously fruity. They've got complexity. They've got earthier undertones to them. Um, and they've, they've got a lot of going on. Um, and that's where I think, you know, Cab Franc is really good as far as even in the Loire. I think the be- my, some of my favorite examples of Cab Franc are the ones that are most accessible, are these $25, $30, $35 Cab Francs from the Loire that are just... I don't want to say crushable that that diminishes their <laughs> their value a little bit but they just have this moorish quality where you open it at, on a tuesday night and you're like oh yes okay this is fantastic <laughs> you know okay, i didn't even just, didn't know i needed this but but i, I did exactly it just yeah. it just hits that 
comfort, like, like a good, you know, plate of pasta or whatever your go-to comfort food is, um, or like a good steak with, you know, baked potato or frites or something like whatever that comfort food equivalent is for me, that's Cab Franc. And I think it can deliver that as a red wine, uh, especially locally, um, you know, it's never going to be the big, boisterous, you know, warm climate red that people are into. But I think as a good, easy drinking Tuesday night kind of wine, uh, I think Cab Franc can really do that uh, well, um, not only in the Loire, but also also in Ontario. Well, let's um, just for sake of conversation, we'll keep it to our our respective lake wine regions tonight. And, but, and I can't wait to have you down to Long Island and the Hudson Valley at some point too. Um, to 2022. Cool. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, so in, in New York, in, in the Finger Lakes in particular, and probably the New York side of the Niagara Escarpment as well, one of the big things that made Cabernet Franc uh, start to really shine is, you know, Cornell did a good bit of research that taught the growers how to, how to, get the ripeness better dialed in. And before that, there were some underripe, over-oaked red wines coming out of the Finger Lakes. But now it seems that most, if not all, of the growers really, really kind of know what they're doing with Cabernet Franc. And there are, we don't have the problems getting it ripe anymore. And it then goes into different directions. There are some who, who do like a touch of the oak and try to push that medium, medium plus style. Maybe it gets blended with a bit of Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon in certain vintages or, uh, or, or it stays single varietal. But I think what our circle, probably those folks who you and I tend to stay in touch with, I think we probably are are most fascinated right now in the lighter styles, the unoaked styles, the styles that are pushing a bit of carbonic, um, and really kind of making Cab Franc in almost more of a Beaujolais style in New York. That is what I like. I'm curious, and and I know you haven't tasted everything, but you you had a good, quite a quite a good crash course in New York Cabernet Franc when, when you were here over the summer, and I I think I saw a photo of what you took back for yourself. Um, talk to me about about some of those wines that that you had when you were there, or that you took back and have since had. Yeah, um, and that was that was such a fantastic opportunity. I'm so grateful to the folks at FLX Excursion Excursion um, for inviting me so that I could do some shopping. Uh, but yes, uh, and. To your point, the the T23, actually, to be very honest, um, the very first night that I arrived in uh, in Geneva, uh, I had dinner uh, at Kindred Fair. And uh, the first, the, my very ever first Cabernet Franc from Finger Lakes was the T23. It was the 2019 from Lamoureux uh, Landing. And it was one of those moments of like, oh, wow, this is tasty. <laughs> This is this is a good start. I'm happy with where <laughs> where where we're you know starting off here as far as my Finger Lakes Cabernet Franc journey. And um, from what I have uh, I've tasted so far, I am really enjoying some of these uh, stainless steel fermented or or you know if there's any concrete. I don't know if anybody's working with concrete in the Finger Lakes, but uh, these unoaked versions of Cabernet Franc I think are really exciting, and we're starting to see more uh, folks in Ontario do that as. As well, um, which it makes me just absolutely elated because 
for the longest time, uh, we were trying to make, you know, these cab francs be bigger reds. And there are some people that are still going that direction with, you know, more wooded styles of oak styles of cab franc. But uh, we're seeing now a few more uh, producers get behind un oak styles. And I absolutely love it. Um, I think regardless of the vintage, whether it's a cooler vintage or a warmer vintage, um, if the fruit is handled properly, the yields are good. I think um, it can make it just a delicious wine. And like you said, I've had some that have a touch of carbonic or semi-carbonic kind of element to it. So you're getting these extra sort of fruitier aromas uh, in addition to everything else. And it's just a, a delicious example of uh, the versatility of Cab Franc as a, as a grape variety. I don't know if you can hear, but I'm I'm decanting this bottle right now. Um, oh, I'm, so, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we started chatting about this podcast because so I I just opened uh, opened a new business, which um, shameless plug here <laughs> is called Paul Brady Wine. It's down in Beacon, New York, in the Hudson Valley, and we are we are a winery. We have a winery license, and we make our own custom wines and. We also sell wine, beer, spirits, cider from all our favorite producers from across New York State. We have a retail section and a bar as well, a full bar. And uh, we've been open just shy of a week now, and it's been a a whirlwind of excitement. And and thank you to everyone who has come out so far and has supported us. Um, And I'm pouring the Lamero Landing T23, as you mentioned, current vintage, which is 2020 by the glass at the bar. And the folks at Lamero sent me a a little vertical of uh, the same wine from 2011, 2013, and 2015, which is how you and I started chatting about about doing this podcast and doing a little sort of compare contrast uh, of wines from similar back vintages from Ontario. Uh, made of Cabernet Franc as well. So I just decanted the 2015 uh, T23 unoaked Cabernet Franc from Lamoureux Landing on the east side of Seneca Lake. And it's uh, it smells pretty good. I'm not going to lie. So you have over there a 2017 Vineland Estates, correct? Correct. Yeah. 2017 Vineland Estates uh, Cabernet Franc. And this is their, uh, we call it here, generalist <laughs> Cabernet Franc, because um, in the LCBO, you have a generalist section, and which is like, uh, you know, lower price, lo- larger volume products. And then you have vintages, which is this higher end section. Um, and this is Vineland Estates uh, generalist Cabernet Franc. So this retails in Ontario for $15, fourteen ninety five. Um, which is a smashing value. And it used to, back when I started in the industry, this used to retail for $12.95. And uh, it is just, it's unoaked. Um, it's cheerful. It's crushable. Um, if Brian is listening, um, he, he knows that this is my house wine. Um, but the 2017 vintage was an outstanding vintage here. Uh, cooler during the summertime, uh, and it was a little scary, uh, during most of the summer cause it was cool and wet. And then we were saved by the most glorious September and October and it saved the vintage and actually turned out to be a really fantastic one for Cabernet Franc. And, uh, I've loved a lot of the Cab Francs I've tasted from, from 2016. So it's a treat that Brian pulled this out of, uh, of their library so that I could taste it tonight. 
Yeah, I'm curious. 2017. So I, I, I did a little bit of harvest work in the Finger Lakes that year with uh, Nathan Kendall. And mm. I rem- my recollection is that the month of August was quite mild and rainy uh, in the Finger Lakes. And then September turned beautifully sunny pretty much from the get-go and stayed that way. Sort of saved the harvest. But that there was a lot of rain before that. It was a big crop. Acidity levels were very, very high, but but because we had that nice autumn, the red wines in particular really stick out to me from that year. Was that similar in Ontario? Exactly. Absolutely. And that was the, that was the critical, um, savior for, uh, particularly for Cab Franc. And, and to your point, um, I've actually, I had, uh, I've had a few producers from the Finger Lakes, uh, kind enough to share that Cornell study with me. Uh, and one of the key factors for eliminating the pyrazines for eliminating that nasty green undertone that Cab Franc can have is sunshine. A lot of people assume that you need heat units to get rid of that, but it's actually sunshine is the is the catalyst for burning off those really herbaceous undertones. And a lot of the Cab Francs that I've tasted in Niagara from 2017, um, they don't have that green undertone because there was enough sun in that later part of the growing season, um, you know, just in the final weeks of ripening that they were able to, we were able to kind of get over that pyrazine hurdle uh, with a lot of success. But yes, you, you nailed it. That's exactly how it was here as far as the conditions. Well, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned sunlight. I mean, light is something that I don't think is talked about enough in terms of its effect on viticulture. That's something that when I worked at Rouge Tomat um, with Pascaline Le Peltier, she used to talk about how important light, not just heat, but light is uh, in terms of uh, in terms of viticulture. Um, and what so pyrazine what what is your take on that i i certainly want a little bit of pyrazine i want a little bit of greenness i don't want underripe wine but i want a little bit of that character in my cabernet franc do you do you lean into that as well oh absolutely it's it's not cab franc without that um you know i i speak uh, when I'm presenting a wine on my on my Instagram feed, when I speak about the the pyrazines, uh, I speak on a spectrum, uh, and and they can they're not it's not just bell pepper or or weediness, which to me I associate more with um, poorer examples of Cab Franc. To me, it, it can range anywhere from. Uh, you know, herbal undertones to more evergreen undertones, whether it's like cedar or spruce or other evergreen elements, then you get uh, mossiness, you can get tomato leaf, you can get black currant leaf, you can get all these elements that are the the pyrazines coming through, but it's not in this offensive sort of way. And it, and it really plays off the fruit component. I think when it's done well, it plays off the fruit component beautifully. And it actually makes the wine uh, a really great food wine as well, because so much of what we eat has all these, you know, whether it's vegetables or just, uh, you know, the the composition of how dishes are. Cab Franc as a, as a wine for the table is really fantastic, whether you're having a roast chicken and a salad or you're having, you know, whatever you're having. Those herbal undertones that Cab Franc naturally have make it such a great foil uh, for food. So what, in general, what do you, what do you look for in, uh, in terms of Cabernet Franc from places 
other outside of France and outside of our little nook of northeastern North America here, have you found any examples that you really love coming from any other regions? The the examples that I have really gravitated to, um, it, oof, that's that's a tough one. Um, I mean, yeah. Had... If there's not an answer to that, then that's no. a good thing for both of us because I I truly believe that what we have going on here in places like New York and Ontario for Cabernet Franc outside of France, I I, I don't know that anyone is really owning Cabernet Franc. You know, I, I will I will agree with you there because I have you know I've had examples from Argentina, I've had examples from uh, Hungary, Italy, and they are great in their own right. But as far as a as a leading grape, as a, as far as a grape that a region, whether it's Ontario or, or New York, uh, could really hang their hat on and put forward on a global level, you know, whether they're traveling to Hong Kong or Finland or where have you. Um, I think Cab Franc is, is a grape variety that both of our regions can do exceptionally well and, and, make, and, and make the statement that this is a leading grape variety, you know. Italy does a lot of things really well. Sure, the, you know, Bulgari, Super Tuscans, all those things are some great Cab Francs coming out of Italy. But is it, you know, is Italy known for Cab Franc? Mm, not really. But I've tasted some really outstanding examples from uh, from that country. But as far as a, a leading grape that we can really, you know, fly the flag uh, quite proudly, I think uh, I think Ontario and New York has something really, really special here, for sure. Yeah, and... It, we should talk about the wines that we're drinking right now. Um, so this, so you, you mentioned uh, the Lamoureux Landing that you had uh, upon uh, arriving in New York, and that, that's what I'm drinking here right now. You had the 19. Um, I'm pouring the 2020 by the glass at, at our place in Beacon. And what I have right now in front of me is a 2015. And this wine is like, hasn't, has barely moved. I would, I would almost call it still a baby. Like it is tight. It, the acid is there. It, it definitely speaks Lamoureux Landing, Seneca Lake, T23, Cabernet Franc. I will say that I think that both the viticulture and the winemaking continues to get better every year at almost every good winery. Here in New York and Lamoureux Landing included, the current winemaker, Aaron Roizen, I think he did a bang up job with that 19 that you had and also the 20, which is the current vintage. But I don't even know who was making the wine there in 2015, but this stylistically is absolutely a brick house of a Cabernet Franc and I, and I think will continue to, uh, to, to age delicately and finely for, for years to come. And I'm excited to get into some of the earlier vintage or this, by the way, listeners, you know, mom and the three other people, uh, this is uh, going to be at least a two, maybe a three part series, Allison. I don't know yet um, <laughs> because we, we, we've got some back vintages to get into uh, of our stuff. So tell me about the 2017 Vineland Estates. Well, uh, one thing that I can say about Vineland and that is different from, from Lamoureux in this instance is uh, Brian Schmidt has been the winemaker there. Uh, 2021 was his 30th vintage at Vineland Estates. And if there is a wine that you can open uh, without thinking about, without 
you know, regardless of the vintage, you know, any time, whether it's, it's had some years on it or it's a brand new release. This is a wine. His, his, uh, $15 Cab Franc is a wine that is very dependable. He knows exactly what he's doing as far as, uh, the winemaking is concerned. Uh, this is not a hundred percent estate fruit. They are working with some growers cause it is a, a higher volume wine. And I should have asked Brian what volume they do of this, uh, annually, but, um, this 17 is really showing quite, quite beautifully. It's starting to get some evolution, uh, but it's by no means, you know, it's, it's nowhere into that tertiary spectrum. There's just an extra level of complexity. And actually, Cap Franc in Niagara, I think, does need a little bit of time. I'm not sure why that is quite yet, but I have examples, you know, I've had examples from the Loire where I've had a 2020 and it's like singing out of the gate, whereas I've had 2020s already from here and they're like, little bit shy and it takes them a little bit more time. Maybe it's the cooler climate, maybe it's the soils. I'm not quite sure, but, um, this, this 17 is a real, real treat to, to open tonight. And this is one that I've been drinking forever. Um, but it's, it's just, there's a lot going on in terms of the middle palate, the, just, it just packs such a punch as far as quality price ratio. If I put this in front of someone and and poured it for them blind, I guarantee they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't say, oh, this is a $15 Cap Franc from Ontario. Um, it, it drinks really, really well. They would probably go old world. Yeah. In, in, in a blind tasting. Oh, absolutely. Right, I think so. Right to the Loire or, or could they even think like right bank Bordeaux? No, this I don't think it's doing any any Bordeaux things. There's screaming, enough... screaming varietal Capron. <laughs> it is it it. There's a nice herbaceous undertone. Um, yeah, there's a nice little cedary thing happening. It's it's definitely. I think if you you had to pick, it would certainly be more of a Loire Valley style of Cab Franc, and I think that's what he's going for here is something fresh, easy, and just very approachable and companionable and welcoming and just like a big hug is what it is. <laughs> so it, it, I think it's interesting that we met at a recent conference, um, and you know, perhaps not unsurprisingly, talking here today about Cabernet Franc, but when I, when I read or listen to podcasts and, and uh, just sort of try to keep an ear to the pulse in terms of what everybody's talking about, like we could talk just about Canadian sommeliers. When I hear John Zabo, Sarah D'Amato on their podcast, in terms of New York, they're most excited about Cabernet Franc, seemingly uh, over Riesling. Um, Paul Greco as well. I recently heard him um, making noise about New York Cabernet Franc, which is kind of shocking. He tends to not talk much about New York other than the way of Riesling. Um, but that, I mean, there are a lot of eyes in the wine world on New York Cabernet Franc right now. Are the wineries in Ontario sort of as a red grape rallying around Cabernet Franc any more so than they used to? Uh <laughs> uh, there is a lot of um, excitement around Cabernet Franc. Uh, there's a bunch of new because virtual... you have the Pinot and the Gamay, which is you know uh, hard to hard to deny the you know everyone's mm-hmm. enthusiasm for for those. 
Yeah, the the big stumbling block with with Cabernet Franc, I think, is the fact that the consumer still, I don't think, quite quite understands what it is. Um, and I see here in Toronto lists that have a lot of Gamay, you know, from whether it's Beaujolais or Burgundy, and obviously uh, Pinot. I mean, from Burgundy, and then you have the same sort of supportive lists from local producers. But uh, I think Cabernet in general is a challenging sell. It's not quite as sexy as Pinot. It's not, it doesn't have the same uh, cachet perhaps. So I think our big stumbling block as an industry here is talking about Cabernet Franc in a way that gets people excited to drink it. Um, but, you know, we're seeing more producers here that are trying to fly the flag. Uh, Pearl Morissette is a great example of another producer that is really uh, behind Cab Franc. And um, there is a lot of uh, little virtual, you know, uh, labels popping up that are using Cab Franc from really fantastic vineyard sites, which makes me very excited. So uh, the, I'm seeing more and more of it. Um, but I think there's there, there's an uphill battle as far as that conversation with the consumer because I I still think that they struggle with what the grape is or what it should taste like and obviously it's versatility being fruitier or heavier or you know fuller bodied or what have you um, it can be that's that can be tough for consumers to wrap wrap their head around you know um, but I think I think we have a lot of potential here as far as where we're going with with Cabernet Franc but I'm obviously quite biased. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the Pearl Morissette stuff, we, uh, we do see that down here in, in New York at least. Um, and I remember working at Rouge de Mont, Pascaline used to pour that blind for French winemakers who would come through. We, we definitely had, uh, a bit of the Pearl Morissette stuff and, and, um, you know, it, it was, you know, certainly something beyond worthy to, to pour blind for, you know, a French winemaker from the Loire. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so Allison, I think what we need to do as we close out part one here, um, I'm going to suggest, and you can, you can, you know, you can say otherwise and tell me what you think we should do, but I think we should do part two, another podcast. I'm in. And then, and then for part three, I think you should come down to New York to the Hudson Valley and I will put a, a Cabernet Franc flight on the menu at the bar and we'll have two from New York and two from Ontario. That would be amazing. And hopefully and we'll have a battle of the Cabernet Franc. <laughs> well, I'll make sure that I bring, uh, my, my best, my best hitters, you know, I'll, I'll stack my, what do you say in baseball? Stack the dugout or like, <laughs> I'll make sure that well, I'll, you know, uh... all my, all my good guys on my roster that day. I'll, I'll have a look at what I can get my hands on here. I mean, wineries that are available, Pearl Morissette is one for sure. Um, back in the day, I'll have to check and see who they're coming in with. Cave Spring, certainly. Taz, um, Henry of Pelham, uh, I want to say Flat Rock, Hidden Bench, and there could be more now that I'm forgetting, but um if uh, you know you, you can bring some stuff down, but I, I out, out of those, I'm sure we can find some some worthy cab francs for for a flight. 
Well, if I decide to to drive, then I'll just like load my car up. <laughs> I'll, ask for, I'll ask for a sponsorship and be like, hey, you're willing to give me a case of this so I could take it to New York? Um, we'll for, see, for we'll see if people band. take me up on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I would, I would love that. And I need to get back, to, well, I need to get to New York, period. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it there this year. Because of everything, so hopefully 22, yeah. 2022 will be will be better. Okay, well that sounds like a good place to conclude for now. Until part two, uh, when we get into uh, another back footage of our respective uh, house cabinet front here. Um, Looking forward to. It. Thank you, Paul. Right. Thank you, and have a wonderful holiday season. Be safe, be happy, and I will see you on the Instagrams, and uh, we'll be in touch, and we'll do this again soon. Thank you so much, Allison Sleet, at Capron Chronicles. Cheers. On <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers. Thanks, Cheers. everyone, for listening. Shout out again to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com, and subscribe to the Cork Report newsletter. Bye, everybody.